giggling here. Um, so I said that if we got some questions about Act One that we could answer, I'd try to throw together a little Q&A. And we did get some questions about Act One. And we also asked our dear friend, Michaela, who Yay. listens to the show and had a whole bunch of questions for Katie. We, uh, we asked her if she wanted to sit in and participate in the conversation. And she said, yes. Yay! Yay! So thank you for joining us, Michaela. Uh, welcome. Uh, it is an utter pleasure to be here. <laughs> so, just to establish where you're coming from, I want to ask you a quick two-part question to kick things off. First, what is your relationship to the horror and fantasy genres? Are they in your typical wheelhouse, that sort of thing? And second, what uh, what is your relationship with role-playing games and actual play podcasts? Like, how much of what you hear on the show is familiar to you in terms of the world or the game mechanics? And how much is new? Terrific. Um, where do horror and fantasy live not in my life? There we go. Is a more apt question. Um, I, I'm a, a huge horror fan, um, fantasy, all, all of it. I, um, I like navigating these spaces. I feel like they show so much more about humanity than humanity will openly reveal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just, it's so... I love the gore and the gush <laughs> and all of it. I'm a, I'm a big fan. As far as my relationship with role-playing games, I'm a noob, mm -hmm. very novice. It has actually been incredibly useful to me as someone who's new to listen to you all and how you... Ha the, you know, learning vocabulary and as far as, you know, just kind of sharing space when yeah. you are developing space at the same time, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the holidays, mm -hmm. Mafella got us a Gloomhaven. Oh, nice. And uh, I think the box weighs around 40 pounds. <laughs> and uh, funny story, we, so we, we uh, you know, going through the, the, the instructions and we're, we're, playing with all the pieces and yeah. taking everything out and unwrapping and all of the things and I was getting very antsy and I'm like let's just play we're just gonna play we're just gonna, we're just gonna throw everything at the wall and we're just gonna play and um, we did it all wrong it was all wrong we screwed it up we fucked it up so bad we were like oh we literally didn't read this one page. Oh no! <laughs> and so, but I, I love, I love failure. I love being mm. wrong. And so mm, it yeah. was. Um, oh, you must really like us. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. <laughs> deeply. But so, so that's been super fun, and we're we're getting our back, or getting back into that. Getting so I have I've a toe yeah. in the water. You all have presented, I feel, this game in a way that makes it so accessible to every level of listener, whether they are familiar with RPGs or D&D or, or what have you. And the fact that you all went in so blank at the top and were discovering with your listeners, hmm. um, it, it really enriched my experience mm. of it. And, um, and it kind of felt like we were all coming at it from a, a similar place, not exactly the same, but, but similar. It's been really, really fun. Oh, thank you. That's great thank to hear. Thank you. That, and that is one of the things that we wanted, like the way we started the story, the way we did was partially so that we would have to actually kick off by explaining a whole bunch of things about character class and yeah. those mechanics. The minutia is really fascinating. Yeah, I, I don't want to rehash the entire discussion that you and I had on chat today. <laughs> but the questions that you were asking were really like uh, really interesting and, and exciting to me because, like, I got to explain to you, oh, that thing that you're that you're coming at from a character perspective. I'm like, that's a class 
thing and that yeah. was our interpretation of that class thing and how it the, the how it became context on air and I, I, that was really really fun yeah. Awesome. So what I thought we'd do here is uh, we got a whole bunch of questions folks sent us in. I thought I would have Michaela ask them to us, and then she can do any follow-up or ask any questions she wants as she goes. So uh, here we fun. go. Outstanding. We'll start with a question from Lauren, and this is for Rob specifically. Mm-hmm. Lauren asks, how dare you? <laughs> This is my favorite question. And I want to echo that. <laughs> so uh, I will say then, the reason I do dare is because of these four people and they're continually yes-ending what no- and nonsense and garbage I throw at them. Here, here. Uh, I wouldn't have the ability to do whatever Lauren bothered you so much <laughs> if they didn't roll with it. <laughs> All right. Well, Ian asks, what were your favorite moments of Act One? Yeah, we talked a little bit about that in the conversation we recorded right after we finished playing Act One, but it's been a year and a half now. We've all had a chance to revisit those episodes as they've come out. So, with the benefit of distance, what what were everyone's favorite moments from Act One? I want to answer this one right off the bat with two favorite moments that came in Chapter 12 for me. A small one was... Katie discovering that she was rolling a D12. Oh my God, that's fine. That was fine. Did I steal yours? Yes. Oh, sorry. You're steal the other I one love too. that moment. I know you are. I'm going to steal the other one? Uh, probably. Somebody is. Same. It's the same chapter. It's when. Okay, maybe not. It's when Gaul goes so rogue hoging. and yeah. continues to skulk forward <laughs> like unbelievably. To me, that whole sequence is like a Wes Anderson movie where he's going further and further and further beyond the bounds of safety. And the three of us are just sitting in the in the reception area like. (laughs) It started to feel a little like this is unbelievable that this is actually (laughs) continuing to happen. And so, like, how what does that mean for the care? Like, how do we interpret that as a character moment, too? And like, how do we feel about this person who can do this? I love that. And then come back with like tiny fetuses clinging to him right right it wasn't just the it wasn't just the going out it was also that yeah return all right i'm just gonna say the one that's my favorite because it's the violin story mm. um i think we probably said that on the other recording too but uh mm. that still haunts me the end of that psychometry mm. reading yeah, that is one of the. That's the last one that I I improvised. All the rest of them were all scripted, but that was that was the last of the ones. That that was the one that made me realize, oh shit, I better write these down so that I don't forget the things that I want to say in them. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You improvised that one? Yeah. How dare, dare you? How dare you? <laughs> you can hear me on the raw recording. Go, huh? I'm not really ready to do this, but I guess let's just do it. Uh, you say that every time, though. I really, I really. You that. just assume you're lying when you yeah. say that. Yeah. Oh no. Your idea of not ready is a lot different than everybody else's Everyone idea of yes. not ready. I think this that's true. very true. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was not scripted. Fair enough. I'm awfully fond of Dora waking up next to Barnabas. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> One of my favorite openings uh, to an episode, and oh, yeah. clearly, I think my my favorite uh, end moment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I've got two. My favorite serious one was uh, again Rob's funeral for Reynard. I absolutely like I have listened to that probably too many times and it has made me weep on more than one occasion. Um, 
just thinking about everything that's been going on in the past couple years and how much awfulness there has been and how much death and and every time I listen to it, it, it somehow renews my faith in the world, which is wow. really says something about me and something about your uh, your talent, my friend. Oh, thank you. Um, and then uh, it's a very small moment. It's sometime after Dora's madness, and I can't remember what starts the conversation, but Grip asks her, asks her a question about, well, what did you take away from, you know, your, your counseling session? And she says something about the futility of, the futility of existence. And the timing on it is so unbelievably good. That was your, no, I can't do it, but it was that like, was that your was your fucking takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you're so, you're so completely flummoxed. Like that was what you got from this counseling Eight session. Eight hours. Oh, and that's what it you is, got? It was so, I, every time I listen to it, it makes me, again, cry from laughter because yeah. it's so funny. It's so, <laughs> so funny. Pure. I love that moment. I want to add one, um, and that's and that's Ray's uh, eulogy of winter, which yeah. which also yeah. he improvised over the course of that f- uh, recording that episode. Yeah, yeah he, he was like, beautiful. I think I'm going to do this, and then as we did everything else, he was just sitting there working, yeah. looking Take things up, making notes, writing shit down. It was pretty. Outstanding. Really awesome. Yeah. Uh, my favorite is uh, it's in the interlude, and it is the moment that I pass out your old character sheets <laughs> and hearing all of you gasp. Mm. You know, it's the kind of trick I can really only pull once per campaign. Mm. And I didn't know if that was going to be the right time to do it. But it was one of those things where I'm like, okay, all right, yes, this is going to be fun. And this is going to be meaningful. And this is a, an interesting way to get back into this together as a group. So It, it was also great because we all came in there thinking we were going to do something else. Yes. And Have we a- were all like armed with agendas <laughs> for how we were going to handle coming back to that records room yeah, and right. what we were going to say to Gull. And then you're like, no, we're going to do something else, something that broke my heart <laughs> for the first time. I One of my favorite moments that became a reoccurring moment for Grip, actually, was what, like episode two, three you immediately are unable to look at slashing weapons. <laughs> and how one, long... That, that, happened, one, that, that happened was episode in the first one. episode. Yes. That was one of the very Say first it. things that happened to Grip. Yeah. That the whole thing. was so bogus. And, and <laughs> <laughs> I was so pissed on your behalf. And every time it surfaced, it played out so beautifully and, and, and comically, but... You just rolled with it. No pun, Foxy. <laughs> hey. um, um, but that was that was great. All of these all of these traps and things that came up. The the navigation throughout oh, yeah. all of it was so captivating. Uh, let's see. Uh, Benjamin. Benjamin has a two part question. The first part is: Is the small black and orange fox that appeared in Dora's vision of Tima and Gulliver's wedding in Chapter Thirty Four? who apparently was Tima's familiar Reynard, the same fox the team found dead in Chapter 3 and which Gull gave to Winter to inter in the chapel in Chapter 10. Long question, simple answer, yes. Same fox. (laughs) Wow. All right, all right. The second part of that question is, if so, how did Gull recognize him? I think this will be a fun thing to answer. So you want to start that, Johnny? Absolutely. So when Rob asked us to play in this campaign, he said, uh, so 
you're going to have to trust me because we're going to start off the campaign and you don't know anything about your character. And I was like, okay. <laughs> How do you play a character where you don't know anything about your character? So I took just a couple things that I thought that, that this person would care about. And one of the things that he cared deeply about was animals. I never picked up on that. <laughs> oh, wait. No, I did. <laughs> um, and uh, and so he never actually knew Reynard. Um, he didn't remember him in any way, shape, or form. But he felt immense tragedy and empathy for this poor fox that had obviously been tortured and killed. And then what happens is Johnny does that and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Oh, you know what? I bet he did know this fox in the before times. I bet they did have a relationship. So then I start telling myself a story about what the deal with the actual real Reynard that was Tima's familiar and Johnny's character before all this happened. So there are psychometry visions we have not even gotten to yet that involve the two of them. But the instant John did that, I was like, okay, all right. So this fox is a part of the story now. Uh, And I had never, like, I just, I just kind of put it there as a dog to die and make Katie sad. Um, And then, then, (laughs) how dare you? And then it became, then it became, you know, and obviously then the whole Barnabas slash fake Renard thing happened. And suddenly foxes became this huge part of the campaign that I never could have imagined from the beginning. And it's it's fun stuff like that, where I just kind of like, sometimes I'll just throw shit out there. And then if they grab onto it and make a story out of it, then then that's the story. And then, then we start to run with that. And yeah. that becomes the thing. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Becky asks, what effect did the rainbow fog have on reality? Or was it just a, this is what an onirogen. Oh, not, that's how that word is spelled. Guys, this has been so great. We, I have, in, in try, I'm sorry, I'm derailing this for a moment. In talking with Katie over the past uh, several weeks, I will. T- I type what I think is how uh, it's spelled, and then parentheses sp question mark and parentheses, and she's always correcting me. So onirogen, that's what it is. Okay, let's take that question again. Becky asks, what effect did the rainbow fog have on reality, or was it just a this is what an onirogen looks like thing? So there were two different kinds of onirogens that we experienced in Act One. The main Oneirogens, which were the three that they fought at the very, very end, and the one they fought in the Northwest Tower, those were the fully functioning Oneirogens. Those are the ones that were actually spilling dream stuff from the plane of dreams out into the real world, slowly enveloping the entire asylum into a bubble, which would then get sucked off into the dimension of dreams. The rainbow fog that was coming out of Dr. Lissandro was a little bit different because she was a malfunctioning Oneirogen. We actually do have a conversation in Act 2 about why specifically she was malfunctioning. Mm. But on a purely mechanical level, uh, this is just fun information about the Oneirogen creature in the game. Uh, effectively, the fog that was coming out of Dr. Lissandro, because it was linked to the dimension of dreams, does this thing where it makes anybody who steps into it fall asleep. But there are... Uh, any number of kinds of onirogens, uh, you can rip a hole in somebody to any number of the outer planes, and the shit that comes out of them is totally different. So in this case, the rainbow fog makes you fall asleep. If you tear a hole to the abyss, then the mist that comes out 
fills you with terror and makes you shaken. If you tear a hole to, um, let's see, to Elysium, the mists that come out uh, fill you with elation and confuse you. Uh, you can tear holes to the elemental planes, which in that case, like the fog is filled with like acid damage or electrical damage or coal damage or fire damage. So there are many, many different kinds. We've only so far experienced basically two iterations of one kind. But the reason why it was rainbow was because it was malfunctioning. And we will talk more about that in act two. Um, John Henry asks, how many of the twists and turns are the gaming module and how much is your game master? How dare you? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. We talk a lot in Act One about how uh, Act One and kind of Act Two, the way the, the the adventure is structured, they're structured as sandboxes, which I realize we use as a shorthand, and maybe not everybody knows exactly what that yes, means. Yes, please explain, noob. Yeah. So, so um, there's kind of a there's a there's a spectrum of adventure design that can go from on one hand to a sandbox and the other hand to event-driven. An event-driven adventure is basically like, here's where the characters are, and then the adventure tells you what happens, and then they have to make whatever choices they make. Then the adventure tells you this is the next thing that happens, and the characters make those choices. Gotcha. In the case of a sandbox, the setup is really, here's where the players are, here are all the people in that town. Here's the things in the past that have happened in that town. And here's what the people in town are planning on doing. And then you just kind of set the characters loose and the GM knows what the non-player characters' motivations are and the players have their own motivations. And then anything can happen. The characters can go wherever the players want them to go. The game master can have the NPCs do whatever they want them to do. Uh, but there's no like story structure to it. Mm. So this uh, this particular adventure is much more sandboxy, with like two choke points. The first choke point is the is the barricade. Uh, they basically establish uh, one thing you have to do to get past it, which is to kill a certain number of doppelgangers. That's to force you to investigate a certain part of the area. Though how you go about doing that is entirely up to you. And then the second kind of choke point is you know when we got we got to the point where it's like we've cleared out through the administration wing. We've cleared out the East Ward. Now we know we have to get to the North. We know none of the ways to get there are good. But, you know, there's kind of a, a built-in choke point there of like, do everything below that first because you can access it. So, basically any plot that happens is really generated by us. That's great. Um, can you can you speak to a term called railroading? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk about it as a player? <laughs> uh, about how I... Intensely dislike it and will often fight against it, kicking and screaming. Yeah, I'm going to look a little something up real quick here. So you talk about railroading. Uh, railroading is sort of an extreme version of like event-driven stuff where literally you cannot progress forward in any way, shape, or form unless you um, complete a quest. So like if it was like a video game, you're like, you have to complete this thing to get to the next thing. And then once you complete that, then they go, here's another quest for you to do. And you can't get to the next thing until you complete that. Mm -hmm. And over and over and over again. So... Your idea of free will yeah. kind of disappears, which is not really, then to me, this game becomes a lot less fun. Sure. So that, that's sort of the general idea of it. So when I saw this question, I was trying to think of like, what is a good example of a plot twist to talk about? And I thought about the Basily doppelganger, the murder of Winter, mm. and all that shit that happened right there. None of which is in the adventure. Um, so, hmm. Basley's name is only mentioned once in the entire book, hmm. and there's only two sentences about her. 
and it, all it says is, uh, Basilie Harbor is a patient who's quick to smile and sleepwalks into the hall. She might be replaced mid-adventure by a doppelganger who seeks to destroy the chapel's Desnan shrine. Now, what I love about, what keeps drawing me back to Paizo adventure paths is uh, I tend to love the sandboxes they create in that they're interesting locations with interesting NPCs, like I think Byerson Asylum is, but they're also great at one-sentence hooks that they don't have to expand on, but like if they grab you, like you immediately start telling yourself a, yourself a story. So I, I like, she might be replaced mid-adventure by a doppelganger. <laughs> huh. Then I start going like, how would that work? Well, it's not like a doppelganger can really wander into there. They're in a closed environment. Oh, so she's doppelganger from the beginning. Well, then what's she doing? And how would she go about this? Like, under what circumstances could she possibly, like, she's always watched. This is, they're only in a single room. So then I start to tease that out. And then I'm like, oh, but these, these particular doppelgangers are very, very depraved and evil. So they'd want to do something. Under what circumstances would they? And then, then I, then the brain just goes, yeah. and then that interacts with what the, with what the players do, and then you end up with story, you know. Yeah, he separates everyone. Before that, we all come back to the chapel in a state. Uh, Tima has just let Reynard get away. That's right. She's upset. Yep. She comes in talking to Winter, air quotes, saying, "I, I, I know you have something you need to talk to me about, but I have to deal with. I have to clean him up. Yeah. I have to make sure he's okay. I have to, mm-hmm. you know, she's." Agitated, yeah. Um, and he, Rob, separates all four of them. Monster. Has Winter <laughs> tell Dora, you know, can you just do this one thing mm-hmm. before you go and deal? With can you just show your box? back to me? Yeah, and- <laughs> real quick. Yeah, look at this knife. Oh, it's gotta so go it's right pretty- in there. It's kind of infuriating to listen to because you can hear it happening while it's happening, but I didn't know it was happening when I was at the table. Well, as a listener, you're just like, okay, yeah, Winter's the boss. She needs something. All right, well, you got to put down the fucking fox. The big joke about anyone, like, never split the party up. That's that's rule one. You should never split the party up because it never goes well. And... Usually, we're pretty aware of not letting that happen, but he just systematically, (laughs) with perfectly plausible reasons that didn't alert me at all. Sort of appealed to our our own, like, little vanities and our own, like, little... You know the, the things like, that I'm gonna, we value. I've got a little right? conversation, a little special conversation for oh, each of you. Oh, Tolman wants to and wants to tell me how valued I am. Huh? I yeah. planned and something I tell special him. for you. Oh, <laughs> how nice! And also, right before we came in, when we were at the barricade, I remember asking, "Oh, did we did we set up anything of like checking to make sure that we're not, you know, doppelgangers or anything like that?" No, no, you didn't set. No, up you did like not. That. Yeah. Like, no, you and did then, not. And then just nothing. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, I thought of another favorite moment that I think is really important. (laughs) Yes. And being a horror fan, Mm -hmm. I think it's vital to point out. While everybody else, after the Tatterman, is like, oh, he's dead. The only person (laughs) who goes to check on it is the only woman in your party. (laughs) And she... 
was 100% right, guys. Yeah. Too fucking easy. It was too easy. I, I had such a, you know, grip goes to check on Gull and Ray's like, oh, wait, Dora, what are you, team, what's going on? And she's like, I'm going to grab this knife. I'll be right back. I'm just going to make sure we're actually done here. We're actually done here. She's the Ripley. If, if yeah. She truly is. Yeah. And what would Ripley do? Ripley would make sure. Fucking stab the body stab over and over the again. Bo- oh, God, it was, it was so Oh God, I, was sta- I remember exactly where I was in my apartment when I was like, that's my bitch. It was so wonderful. I was like, leaping and clenching my fists oh, in my great. apartment all by myself. Um, and now this question is from me. <clears throat> Would Ratch Mamby have actually eaten the children or... Was there the possibility that he could have been a useful ally? He would have eaten the children. Oh, oh yeah. That was such a fan pandering question. <laughs> <laughs> want him to be so much better than he is because you like the voice. I love the voice. So hang on, hang on. So it's actually two questions. The first question, the answer is unequivocally yes. Ratch would have eaten those children at the drop of a hat. However, delicious. it is possible he could have been a useful ally. I I just want to say nope. that. <laughs> nope. Well, nope. we all know where you stand. Nope, on nope, this nope. And oh no. The uh, the possibility of a catchphrase, like, stick em, ratch. Feel like, oh, nice. would have been really great. Yeah, we, could have been, we missed an opportunity. Could have had legs. There. Yeah. You've been ratched. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, you, you do. Ratch Bambi knows all. I mean, that's the catchphrase, right? Ratch Bambi knows. Ratch Bambi is dead. Long live Ratch Bambi. No. Praise. No. Praise. Tasted, Praise tasted pretty Bambi. crunchy and good. Oh, pretty I don't crunchy think so, and good. Because it was diseased guys, meat. How is our favorite moment of the entire book not the guy running down the hallway yelling praise right before praise. he gets shot at? Oh, <laughs> also, also a moment that always makes me laugh praise. out loud every single praise. Boom. <laughs> When was that? I don't remember that. It's right. So we find the guy hanging on the. I'm sorry. We find the guy hanging on the meat hook with the ghoul, uh-huh. and we let him go. And oh, he right, yes, runs yes, yes. straight to the barricade, and they're telling him to stop. And he just says praise, <laughs> and he gets riddled with the gospel. Oh, I remember now. It was a mercy. So much fun. Uh, I had a question for you, Rob. If yep. that's okay, mm-hmm. I was wondering uh, if you could talk. <laughs> This kind of falls along the lines of how dare you. Um, Great. We've got things coming up in us in the story that we're hearing is not all in the book. And I'm, I'm curious about stuff like uh, the corpse orgy. Or are they kids wearing dog masks? Or dogs wearing the faces of children? All of this, like, really grotesque horror stuff. The the um, diapers on, uh, turned into torches. So what's your inspiration? <laughs> Life. Us. Where do you get these great ideas? So, you know, we talked about the joy making. You know, Katie asked, is that a thing in Golarian or did you make that up? And it turns, you know, that was a thing in Golarian that I saw at one point and I was like, hold on to it, use it at some point. So a lot of tidbits like that, like one of the reasons why I love playing this game in this world is that the world of Galarian is so huge and well-developed and with so many interesting things going on in it. So 
I stumbled across the corpse orgy, which is an actual thing in this world. And I, at just one point, I'm like, grab that. Gonna use that at some point. But so, like the the torch that was a broken table leg yeah. wrapped in a soiled diaper. Yeah. Now that's just that's just coming from me. And as I'm, you know, I knew when we started that the four of you would be bombarded with images and stories in your dreams and memories that meant literally nothing to you. But I wanted to plant seeds that we could pay off on for six full acts. And so my thought was, I know what this torch is. And I'm like, the way to make something mundane be something that we remember and ask a question about three years later is by giving it a specific detail that makes it stick out in our heads. So that when we circle back to that detail, whether it's book three or book six, by simply referencing the, you know, there'll be a reason, you'll know why it was wrapped in a diaper. And then that whole Hopefully that whole memory comes back and it makes makes a real. I'm also trying to you know, trying to structure this a little bit like a mystery, not in a building towards a twist sense, but in providing a lot of re-listenability, providing information on on levels that can make some sense that you can act on as they come out. But also when you return to them later, you'll find out like, oh shit, that was a setup for book five. I had no <laughs> fucking clue. You're literally Nolaning this thing. <laughs> well, that's my favorite kind of story type. Like um. Stories that play with time, whether it's either time travel or playing with the order in which we experience events is is like one of my particular interests and something that I thought I could bring to this story as the person who is giving it a framing. I mean, we're, we're telling the story, but I'm framing it. And I wanted to, that, that's the kind of stuff that I geek out on. I love, I love the idea of, you know, you experience one thing, it means one thing. You experience it a second time and you actually know what it meant. Like that's, those are the kind of stories I love going back to. Yeah. Reading over and over again, watching over and over again, that kind of thing. We have a, a I'm so sorry. Uh, we have a road trip planned this weekend, and on our road trip, we will be re-listening to the prologue, the interlude, <laughs> yeah. and the epilogue. Yeah. Fun. So that we can come up with more questions for your next Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like a good time, because you mentioned the joy making. Yeah. If you if people out there are interested in the world of Galarian, oh, yeah. go to the Pathfinder wiki. It is the most wonderful rabbit hole on Earth. You can just... <laughs> Hit the random page and read some wonderful detail about the world of Galarian that has been established either in an AP or just in a in a gazetteer type yeah. thing. It's it's a really amazing place and part of why I love continuing to play. Yeah, like Izo's pick world. any proper noun you've heard on this yeah. show and look it up yeah. and then just start clicking shit and you, you will stumble so into weird fun. things like the joy making or <laughs> other wonderful yeah. things. All right, Mandy asks. Was there a specific reason Barnabas revealed himself when he did? <laughs> uh, there are two reasons, one of which is story-driven. I wanted to do honor to Johnny bringing up the idea that the, uh, that the counseling that Dora was experiencing was also having an impact on Reynard at the time. Eventually, we learned Barnabas, and I knew that Barnabas had been suffering what he had been suffering for slightly longer than Dora. And so my thought was like, once Dora hit the latent stage with her particular madness, I'm like, yeah, in a day or two, whenever it feels right, I think that's when, when Barnabas will kind of click out of this. So I wanted to honor those little bits of story that the, you know, the listener didn't know yet at that point. Yeah. And then number two, I just thought it'd be funny. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were finishing that, that evening and I was like, oh, come on. 
<laughs> Come on, naked guy. She's. I mean, and she deserves it. Yes, yes. <laughs> frankly, yeah, right. Been through a lot. A little bit of comfort. <laughs> a little bit of comfort it goes a long way. Uh, um. All right. Another actual question mm-hmm. from Lauren. <laughs> yes. What does the GM prep for a session look like? I'm fascinated with the creative and pre-production process. So our friend Lauren, who runs a a number of wonderful podcasts. Including Fox and Stallion. Yes, yeah, so I was just going to do that. Talk about it, Kitty, for a second. Yeah. Fox and Stallion is a Sherlock Holmes adjacent uh, Victorian comedy audio podcast that that I am on. Can I say you are on it? Yes, I can. Yes, I've been I, released. Yes, yes, I'm in a yes. cameo. <laughs> Rob is on it. He's also the narrator yeah. on every adventure. Um, lots of fun. Really, really funny. If you're into that sort of thing, yes, do please listen. Uh, Hashtag two two four B Baker. All of Lauren's shows are wonderful. Um, so she asks about DM prep, but I know she's more interested probably in the creative and pre-production process because she is a podcast producer herself. This is a complicated question to answer. I'll see if I can do something concise here. I probably won't, and so I'll just cut this out, but I'll try. The DM prep for this particular session looks a lot like what most DM prep looks like, which is making sure you have your head wrapped around the creatures, encounters, and rules that you expect emphasis on expect, will be involved in that particular evening. So if I expect that the players will be uh, about to participate in an underwater encounter and we haven't had a bunch of those, I got to dive back into the 400-page rulebook and go, all right, so how does how does underwater combat work? Get my head wrapped around it. If I know they're going to have like a, an airborne sort of like dogfight kind of thing, I got to like remind myself how all that works. If there's an enemy that's going to do a lot of grappling, we talk a lot about how complicated the grappling rules are. Try to relook at those and familiarize myself with the statistics and the crunch with all the things that they're going to fight with the hope that I can actually, when we're playing, throw most of that prep away and just play the game so that I'm not stuck. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, let me, now that we've gotten there, Mm. look up the rules. I mean, you know, sometimes that happens, but uh, (laughs) I try to have that not happen. And then a lot of it is about reviewing for myself the motivations of whoever they're dealing with and doing a little flow charting for myself of like, okay, if such and such happens, how might they respond if such and such happens? Just so I have something to fall back on if I don't get an idea when we're playing. The larger question is, this is my first experience trying to structure this thing that we do as a game into something that is actually entertainment constructed for other people to listen to. And that piece piece is is new and is, is really, really tricky. That involves a lot of writing, and a lot of throwing my writing away. The first decision I have to make every week is, do I want or need a a scripted intro to the sessions? Some some weeks it feels very important to stop, talk about what's just happened, maybe queue up some questions, maybe if it's been a long day of battle, remind everybody how the day actually started, because it was like six weeks ago now that that day actually started. You know what I mean? That happens a lot. Sometimes it's just like, yeah, we're fighting shit. You remember where we are. Let's go. So I have to make that decision. And then... Talking with a couple of writer friends the last couple of weeks, we were talking about what this particular job is like for something like this, and we we ended up likening it to, I'm essentially show-running a mystery TV show where I have absolutely, not only, (laughs) I have no control over what the protagonists do, I don't even know what they're going to do. I can't control where they go, I can't control what they think. Uh, I can lay out, I can have a whole bunch of clues about their backgrounds prepared, but I have no idea the order in which they may encounter them, if ever. And (laughs) most interestingly, I can't 
control the interpretation they have of what happens to them. So that's the piece that I have to be very fluid about. So I have these tools, like in the first book, I have these tools of these dreams that I can use to get parcel out information. I have these tools of the psychometry once we landed on that as a thing that we're doing. But I didn't have any idea which of any of those they would ever encounter and or which order they would do them in. Like there is an iteration of book one, imagine this y'all, if in chapter six, the very first thing Dora reads is Tima's wedding ring. The shape of the entire mm. act oh, is wow. completely different. Mm-hmm. Wow. It just kind of blows your mind. Yeah. And like, that so, was the wedding yeah, vision, right? Right. Yeah. So imagine if that's the first thing you heard. Mm. Now, my what I had for that vision was the same story, but it was doing a very different thing at that time. So if Katie had done that one first, I would not have introduced the name Tima. They didn't know that Gulliver Vatic... This, the mic drop for that would have actually been, holy shit, y'all, the guy that died in chapter one is the guy, is was a huge part of your life. The thing that ended, ended up happening in chapter 15 for us, that would have been the mic drop there. But they would have experienced Dr. Vaticus in that dream with no relationship to the character. And there was a lot of relationship to that character by the time the vision actually happened in chapter 34 or whatever. If we had seen it then... Would the real Reynard have been in the vision as the familiar? No, because I had not even thought of that yet. Yeah. At that point, I hadn't even thought of it. Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess I had, but I, I had not played it out. Uh, so, like, with all of those, I just have to come up with the ideas for what I think they might learn and then just roll with whatever order happens and, and rewrite. Like, for the dreams, I knew I wanted to tell a story of introducing the character of Oliver Zandels at some point. The first one, somehow, I sprinkle him in there. And the second one, he's more involved. The third one, the Tatterman is more involved. And the fourth one, I don't know, something crazy happens where we have a meta moment where we all know that we're dreaming. But I didn't know what order things would happen. So I had a, I had a dream written for all four of them that was basically an iteration of the dream that Grip had where... There was just a fleeting reference to Oliver Zandalus that would have made no sense or they wouldn't have clocked. I think in like Dora's, she's walking down the hallway, one of the books had the face of a man with long white hair on it. Something like that. So then I have to like, once we clear grip stream, I'm like, okay, rewrite all the rest. Now I want them to learn this, this, or that. I don't know which order it's gonna happen in, or even if it is gonna happen, (laughs) and then just keep rewriting it. Uh, So it's a lot of writing, Lauren. It's a lot of writing. That's the answer (laughs) to that question. But But ultimately, um, the goal is to throw it away and try to be present for what they're doing. And then it's it's an old, I think, military adage. Uh, that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. <laughs> In this case, we're the enemy yes. because he doesn't know what the fuck we're going to do. Sometimes the dice are the enemy. Sometimes the dice the dice are often the enemy. But there, in another game we played, uh, uh, Age of Worms, so yeah. like the last campaign we were playing before this group started this, we made a decision, and I'm saying we, but I'm looking at Johnny <laughs> when I say it. Mm made a decision, did a thing that had us skip an entire book of this adventure path. Yeah. So there's no way Rob was prepared for that. (laughs) No, and like to speak to Johnny's hatred of railroading, the last thing I'm going to do when he does that is say, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. Right. I'm like, that's what they did. Oh, we got to figure this shit out. (laughs) All right, we're jumping ahead to something they may not be prepared for. There were pros and cons to what happened. Like certain enemies were were completely unprepared for them, but they also lacked a whole bunch of information that would have been really fucking useful. Uh, But to be fair, 
knowing what you told me of that book that we skipped, yeah. he probably wouldn't have gotten that information. No. <laughs> you anyway, would have bo- even gone through the you book. You would have bombed that book. You messed bombed it up so bad. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I I ha- I'm sorry. I have to go. Well, thank you for joining us, Michaela. Thank you, thank you so much so for coming. Nice. This if, was fun. If ever I can come back, like call me. Please. Yeah, let's get her back in for book two. Oh, we'll have you please, come in for book two. please. Yeah. I I would. I promise I will come up with even more questions and become Yay. more articulate uh, the more I listen and fun. learn about these games because it has been. You guys have been a bit of a gateway drug, truly, like in the very, very best way. So thank you for your delight and your delirium as we have traveled together. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Michaela. It's my you. pleasure. Dark Nexus is a creation of Plug and Hum Productions. This podcast uses trademarks and or copyrights owned by Paizo Incorporated, which are used under Paizo's community use policy. We are expressly prohibited from charging you to use or access this content. This podcast is not published, endorsed, or specifically approved by Paizo Inc. For more information about Paizo's community use policy, please visit paizo.com slash community use. And for more information about Paizo and Paizo products, please visit paizo.com. That's P-A-I-Z-O dot com.